Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. get to respond traditionally, this is the word of God, and traditionally you would say, thanks be to God, and, and maybe there's this question for a moment of, am I thankful for that text? Is that the appropriate response, and we just weigh that for just a second? Jesus, as we take this text, take a moment to process, we ask you to speak. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing, God, to you. May you comfort the afflicted. May you afflict the comfortable. Amen. Take a seat, if you will. Now, I know for some of you, there's probably this momentary reaction when you hear the passage read and you hear the subjects it might cover. You say, ah. I nearly slept in this morning. I nearly, I nearly didn't go. It's a topic that can make some of us incom- uncomfortable. I, when I said I was doing First Corinthians, I uh, jokingly said to the first service, I, I said to my wife, there's this, this passage where we're going to talk about sex and sexual ethics, and she said, uh, I'm sick that week. Uh, and I said, I didn't tell you what week it was yet. And, and of course, it's completely untrue. She didn't say that at all. But, but, but listen to the topic here. It's heartbeat. Um, it, it is a, a message, I would suggest, that is, is PG-13 rated. So we have a great kids ministry. We have places for kids to go and, and to experience what it is to follow Jesus at their own pace. This is a conversation that will deal with uh, all of the things in the texts, and I hope deal with them robustly. It is, is a conversation that, that might be difficult for some of us. When I first moved to America, I was, I was maybe surprised at just how difficult that conversation could be in American church. Particularly, I worked with a, a wonderful lead pastor, but there was this moment where he sat with me and he said, we're doing this series and, and one of the weeks we're going to talk uh, about sexual ethics. Uh, and he said, here's the thing. The, 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 the previous pastor, um, he didn't like talking about sex. So whenever it came up, he made me do it as the associate pastor. And, and now, well, he's gone. And... And now I'm the lead pastor, and, 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 and you're here, uh, and so you, you, you know what follows. There was this me jumping into this role for the first time, and, and yet I have wondered whether it is more of a distinctly American thing to find uh, just the subject matter of sex and sexual ethics an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's uh, something that I, I was surprised about constantly during my first few years in ministry. The, the first time I was told as a youth pastor, you need to write a bathing suit policy for the girls to go on trips. I, I kind of looked with this blank expression and said, well, what exactly is a bathing suit policy? Because it sounds, sounds like something that might get you fired from a church in Europe. I'm not sure that you're allowed to do that 
that kind of thing. Uh, and so I, I just maybe grew up with a different experience. There was a, a picture that just gave me some sort of concept of maybe how sanitized we've made some of this conversation in the church over here at least. Uh, there was a picture of the Noah's Ark and all of the animals going in two by two and, uh, and the two male lions going up together and the, the tagline of good luck breeding those lions. We, we have created an ark, we have created Noah's Ark with no poop and no food and no sex and, and yet it's probably inherent to the story in some way and it's inherent to all of our stories and it's fully within what this text will cover. Paul is doing this difficult work of bringing the sexual ethics of Jesus and broadly speaking the ethics of Jesus full stop to places to whom that was completely foreign that it just didn't make sense. And so we are asked to deal with it uh, in a few different ways. We're, we're gonna try and deal with it in, a, um, in an honest way. We're gonna try and deal with it in an intellectually honest way as we wrestle with this passage. That is my first sort of caveat. My, my second caveat is this. There's this language in philosophy uh, between the saying and the said. I can try and communicate something well, and you may hear a whole bunch of different things, none of which I can particularly control. If there's something that I say in this teaching that you're like, ah, just, that just doesn't sit right, feel free to send emails to Aaron Bjorkland at South Fellowship. No, just feel free to begin that conversation because those conversations are important. Thirdly, my goal with this is to land in a place when none of us, are particularly comfortable or happy with what Paul says. There are things in this passage that I would like him to not say, and they may not be the things that you think I might want him to not say. This is when you embrace it, a deeply uncomfortable passage. Paul takes a whole bunch of things and lumps them together and says, we are only talking about these as a whole we aren't talking about them as individual things. So, so expect some personal discomfort. And if you want to leave at this point, the doors are now locked. And so you can't know that. But the doors are open. We would never lock the doors. But there will be this light that shines down on you and says, you're free to leave. But could you explain why you want to leave, please? It just, that's, that's how we process that kind of thing here. To give you some background, to understand why Paul is maybe as hardline as he is on some of these subjects, we need to understand Corinth for a little bit, just understand maybe how broken it was as a community, a city of people. Gordon Fee says, Paul's Corinth was at once the New York, the Los Angeles, and the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It was both a port city that was incredibly affluent. Money poured into it. It was very rich. It was full of all sorts of different cultures, people from different backgrounds with different gods, with different ethics, or gathering together. Las Vegas is maybe the best picture for this teaching as to the kind of things that took place in Corinth. It's the reason Strabo, this first century writer, says, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. When you go to Corinth, know that things are going to get just a little bit uncomfortable. Corinth was rich, Corinth was liberal, Corinth, were, Corinth was diverse. I would suggest by extension, Corinth is us. It's the communities that we engage with every day. It's the, the America that we engage with regularly. A couple of quotes, um, again, not designed to be offensive, designed to be real about what people experienced as life in Corinth. 
one first century historian to explain why he should be able to have sex with any of his slaves that he wanted to said this, I like sex that is easy and obtainable. That was a viewpoint in Corinth. A second one, a Corinthian idiom, wives are for heirs, mistresses are for pleasure. One of the big struggles of Corinth was rich men who believed they could do whatever they wanted with whomever they wanted to do it. Does that sound a little bit familiar in terms of society? It, it probably should do. So imagine all of that. Paul brings this community of Jesus with all of its ethics and, and needs to land that in Corinth of all places. So the question becomes, how does the church survive with all of these cultures around it? How does the church thrive with all of these cultures around it? And sometimes what Paul does is he lands in a place and he takes some of their culture and he works with it and he uses it to teach them. He absorbs some of it and he reflects it back to them. Other times he strongly opposes what's going on in that particular culture at that particular time. And in, and in this case, what Paul does is Paul brings or counters Corinthian culture by bringing a very Jewish sexual ethic. That's his premise, and, and one of the things we'll wrestle with is you may be here and you may have a different view on some of this stuff, and, and that is fine. We get to be a community that has those tough conversations, and every time we talk about something like this, I embrace the fact that some people may say, I'm not sure I can do church in that community either because it's too far this way or too far that way, and, and what I'm going to try and do is I'm trying to going to try and comfortably irritate and annoy as many of you as possible during the course of this by landing us somewhere in the middle. Paul brings a Jewish sexual ethic that is pretty unavoidable. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, this is what we're told. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the original sexual story in the Jewish world and it's pretty unescapable. It's pretty concretely there in the story from the beginning. We're even told in Genesis chapter four, Adam made love to his wife Eve. What makes me chuckle is in the King James Version, this is what it says. It says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and there's this moment I read it, I'm like, even God doesn't want to talk about sex in church, even he's using different words for it. And yet, here's the interesting thing. Maybe it's more accurate than we realize. That word knew there is the same word used in Psalm 139 where David, the writer of the Psalms, prays, God, search my heart and know me. There is an intimacy, a connection. There is a more than physicality to this language. The physicality is there, sure, but there's something else there as well. So Paul brings this Jewish sense of God's original design that is both spiritual and physical. Again, pretty hard to ignore that this is the original concept, this is the original plan if you take Genesis seriously as a book, but, but yes, it's more than just a physical thing, it's both spiritual and it's physical. So when we jump into this Corinthian text, and what, what we're actually going to do is we're going to take the last part, chapter 6, and then we're going to look at that first, then we'll go back and it will all make sense in the end. But when we look at that, we get a picture of why he brings that. This is a Corinthian quote that we see in quotation marks in chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do anything. 
And Paul's response is, but not everything is beneficial. Second time, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. In Greek culture of its day, there was this premise, the body doesn't matter. Put anything you want in it, do anything you want to it, it's not that important. At some point, it's going to be destroyed anyway. That wasn't a Jewish understanding of how important the body was. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. However, whoever is united with the Lord is one in him, with him in spirit. It's that physical and spiritual working together. In the Greek world, you could split them pretty decisively. It didn't actually matter what happened to the physical because the spiritual that was, was all that was important. In the Jewish world, they both mattered. Paul brings this sense of God's original design that is both spiritual and physical, and this could be seen in the way they did temples. Remember last week, if you were here, I said that God says we're a temple, we're a building as, as people following Jesus. In, in a Greek world, a temple was a place anything goes. You could do anything. In a, in a Jewish understanding, temple was very different. In a Greek world, it was full of sexuality. In a, in a Jewish world, it was distinct. There was a, an importance to the building. It mattered what happened there. In the Greek world, it didn't really matter at all. Paul sets this distinction. He says, no, the body actually matters. If your premise is, it doesn't matter what I do, I would suspect that Paul would strongly disagree. And while we'll wrestle with this viewpoint that the original picture was one that was monogamous, the one that was heterosexual, one that was permanent, I would suggest the thing it seems God most opposes in the New Testament is promiscuity. It's just it doesn't matter. Just go and do whatever you want with whoever you want. We can wrestle with all the other things, but that seems so locked in into God's worldview of healthy sexuality. Flee from sexual immorality. All the other sins a person commits, outside, or commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? It's that temple image. So that, that's some pre-work. A couple of things before we go any further as we delve into what may be the passage that grabs our attention most as we read together. There's maybe some fears here for us, maybe fears for those of us that find ourselves following Jesus, some fears that are for those of us that are wrestling with Jesus, so some fears just in general for all sorts of different people. So many reasons to be afraid. Uh, we will be out of step with society is maybe one fear in wrestling with this. This is just how the world works now, right? We just, you have to go with it. You can't stand up to it. Maybe that is an inherent fear for us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus. How do we fight back against society? I would say, just as a note on that, society goes up and down and up and down. It changes and cultures change and the, the, the staid and reserved 50s are followed by the 60s, which are followed by the 70s and 80s and you see loads of different movement there. We see the story back in Corinth which is not the story in 20th century early England. There's, there's so much movement there that society will change. 
the, the, the sexual ethic that Jesus offers, that Paul offers, is designed to be the same at all times, regardless of the culture. So maybe that's a fear, we'll be out of step with society. Maybe a second one is people we love might be hurt or offended as we wrestle with issues around sexual ethics, around sexuality. Maybe you've got a person that comes to mind. Maybe there's someone that you know that you'd say, how would they deal with this? Because I have those people. I have those people that have been deeply hurt by the church's view on sexuality, that have wrestled with it, for whom it's painful, for whom they won't set foot in church still because of how they've been treated in church. There are times where the church has stood up for a sexual ethic it believes in. There's times that the church has done that well, and there's times that churches have done that terribly. And so if you've grown up with that experience of church, I am so sorry for the ways, the times that the church has done that in a way that isn't good and isn't healthy. Sexual ethic may have been right, but the way that it was done may have been terrible. And so we all have that, maybe that person that we say, wow, how would so-and-so hear this? How would they wrestle with that? And then third, maybe, is the thing people we know might leave. And as I said earlier, there's always that chance. But, but what we'll try and stick with is some kind of intellectual honesty that says, oh, we would love you to stay and wrestle with this. You may disagree. And actually, that, that might be okay. Maybe we don't agree on every little thing. But some fears, yes, but also some dangers. Some dangers that I think are may, maybe we're a little bit more unaware of than the fears. I would suggest somewhere we have an obsession with sex. I would suggest we have an obsession with sex. Where, uh, so, someone said to me not long ago, uh, the, there's been this story that, that Americans are, are, are prudes on the service, surface, but perverts underneath. There, there is a, a conversation about sex in America that is awkward, and yet, even when that's true, most pornography comes from America. Most sexual storylines in movies come from America. There is a, a surface conversation that maybe can't be had, and yet there is an undercurrent that is obsessive about it. A few years ago, my wife and I were in California, and we ended up staying in Malibu. We found this beautiful Airbnb sat up in the Malibu hills, and we went to stay there for the night, and we got there, and it was this beautiful Spanish villa, and the person advertising it had said, you know, I'm a British lady, 75, retired, I mainly ride horses, and my husband's South African, 75, mainly writes books. Come stay with us for the night. It's this beautiful place. You'll enjoy it. So we went up into the mountains and beautiful stone floors all the way through this incredible mansion and then this beautiful fireplace with a whale rib as the, the, the mantelpiece, just, just trying to give you a picture of just how opulent and beautiful this place was. And, and, and this lady, Sue's made me this, this still the best cup of English tea someone has made me since I've been here. Just everything was right about it and we sat and had good conversation and then her husband came down and I said, so Sue says you're a writer. And he says, yep. I was like, wow, this guy does not want to talk about this, which if you know any writers is unusual. Most writers can't stop talking about stuff that they're writing. And so I just pressed a little bit further and I said, so, so you writing anything new? And he said, yep, just finished a project. Get him, 
Nothing, and everything about this encounter was like there's something going on with this couple. And, and so we went home and we did what you get to do now. We Googled them, right? We researched, we went, who are these people? And it, it turns out that they owned the biggest paid pornography network in America. They were under the underbelly of all of the things that are going on in the world, and yet it was all hidden behind an impeccably made cup of English there, there is a way that we take our obsessions and we at times hide them under the surface and then nobody likes to talk about them except maybe some weirdo pastors and one anonymous person said pastors are like the tabloid press they only care about other people's sex lives there is this sense that we have an obsession with sex but, but also a real danger that we miss the real issue Oscar Wilde in this incredibly poignant moment said this about sex everything in the world is about sex, except for sex. Sex is about power. As we see in Corinth, it was about power, not about the thing itself. And there was all of these conversations behind the scenes that are complicated and difficult. We maybe at times we miss the real issue. And if your question to all that, or your, 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 your feeling, emotion about all that is, can't we just not talk about it? Well, maybe not talking about it was what got us in some of the mess we were in in the first place. Maybe it's a conversation that has to be had, that we have to be able to disagree on, that we have to press into the, the, the difficult issues on. We have to do it. Chapter five, verse one to two, 1 Corinthians, it is actually reported to me that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that not even the pagans tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Paul, incredibly for us with our sanitized view of scripture, brings a conversation around incest to the forefront. Maybe he has this in mind back from Amos chapter two. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. In a bunch of other accusations about society, the, the writer of Amos brings this up and maybe Paul has it in the back of his mind, uh, but his big angst here seems to be this next verse, and you are proud. He's talked earlier about the Corinthian sense of pride, how much they know, how wise they think they are, and he's, he, he's wrestled with that, but, but I don't think this is a, a reference back to that. I don't think here he's saying, oh, oh, there's all this bad stuff going on, and remember you were proud about your church as a whole. I think he's talking about the thing itself. He says, a father, a man has his father's wife and, and you're proud of the fact that it's happening. You're pointing to this and say, isn't this amazing? Look how free we are in Jesus. We get to do whatever we want now. Paul is baffled that this is where the church has landed, how he has brought this teaching of Jesus and this is where the community is now. This is what happens when the church, it seems, meets Corinth, we talked about this series being called Christians in the Wild as, as though this is the first time it's exposed to the outside world. We could easily have called it Christians Gone Wild because these guys are just, they're off the charts. They're, they're, there's, a, there's a mess here. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. 
For Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That could be a whole different sermon there. So we're going to take that. We'll come back to it very briefly, but but we're going to move on. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have had to leave the world. Paul, it seems, has a completely different standard for what Jesus' followers look like compared to what other people look like. The misunderstanding has been in, their last, in the last letter he wrote them. They've taken this understanding of like separate yourself from anyone who's doing anything you don't agree with in the whole world. Find out what people are doing and just avoid people that have any, any contrary thoughts, any contrary beliefs. In actual fact, he's not interested in that at all. The, the picture that comes to mind is, is the way that we protest. The way that we go and say, this is how society should work. And I just suspect Paul would say, is that really the main issue? Do you really think you can control society outside of of the church? He's more interested in what happens here than than what happens outside. Maybe a challenge for us in our focus and how we approach that. I would suggest this. Paul expects us as a church, as followers of Jesus, to find a place on the fringe of society. The way of Jesus is not for everybody. It has never been traditional. When the church landed in Corinth, the culture was different, and the church was different to that culture, and they embraced that and accepted it. Part of our struggle is this. We have had decades, maybe centuries now, of being the dominant culture, so we think the way of Jesus fits the traditional way of doing things. And, and as it was founded, no, never. Originally, the church was deeply countercultural, And maybe that's where we end up in the future. Maybe we have to re-establish or, or re-accept our place on the fringe of society. Society won't look how the church might think it should look. Won't look how we might interpret the ethics of Jesus. And our job is not to change people who have not decided to follow the way of Jesus. That in Paul's mind is not achievable. What he said we can take interest in is those of us that have gathered here and said, yes, I'm in on this Jesus story. And we can say this then is what the way of Jesus looks like. But but he's pretty clear it certainly won't be something everybody wants to do. The way of Jesus is difficult. The way of Jesus is not always convenient. There are ways and and, and journeys that the way of Jesus has taken me on that have been deeply painful that I would say have cost me a lot. The way of Jesus is not supposed to be easy. The way of Jesus is hard. Sometimes it will ask you to do things that you don't particularly want to do. Paul embraces this place on the fringe. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. How many of you feel that's a pretty broad list? If you're like me, you'd like some more specificity. I'm like, Paul, could you narrow that down? Are you saying that my perusing of Facebook Marketplace, longing for more and more stuff that I don't actually need, my compelling need to gather, to have affluence, to have more than other people have, 
Are you saying that's in the same category as some of those other things? Because I don't like to hear that. I'd like you to specify, I'd like you to say there's some stuff that we should really be focused on and some stuff that we can let slide just a little bit. And, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't. Doesn't change it, lumps it all in together. There's things on that list that you might say, ah, I just, I'd like to move that around at least, or at least could we prioritize it? But, but no, sexually immoral or greedy, an idolatra or slanderer, and, and slanderer in its loosest sense is, is, is simply to, to speak some evil of people, to be someone who says bad things about some, someone who gossips just a little bit. Like the list is broad, and I don't like that. I want him to specify. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside, expel Ouch, the wicked person from among you. Apparently my Facebook marketplace activity can cost me a place in this community if you see something in me that seems toxic and anti the way of Jesus. And I'm at least called to say, no, I'm, I'm changing that. I'm moving away from that. In the, the, the list of all the things we categorize as big, in the, in the list of sexual immorality and all of those different things, we are also told greed, drunkenness, all of these things that we might say, yeah, we, we can deal with that. We don't even know about it, it's under the surface. They're all put together, and that's why his language is, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough, which maybe unpacks all of that passage for us. And then he goes on to, to, to even more hard words. And, and Peter, this other writer of the New Testament, say, says this, you've, you've heard said that some of Paul's words are difficult and hard to understand. And I'm like, yes, they are really difficult. Thank you, Peter. I, I, I completely agree. Can, can you not say some of these things, Paul? And yet he does. Chapter 6, verse 9, perhaps one of the more famous passages that Paul wrote, certainly one of the most quoted. Or do you not know the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the list again is broader than I would like it to be and says some things that I might not want it to say. And yet that's the list he gives us. It's just thrown there with all of those things together. And yet, inherently in the church, we want to put things in certain places. We want to disclude some things. We'd like to maybe include some other things. And, and all we're called to do is wrestle with the text as best we can as human beings that might emotionally disagree with it. We might say, I don't want that to be there. And maybe even I don't think it should. And maybe some of us will have good conversations with God one day and, and object. Maybe some of us will corner Paul in a different space and say, Paul, what were you thinking? And can we talk about the passage about women in leadership as well? But, but somewhere there's an honest wrestling with the text and why it might say what it says. And perhaps the danger of all of this is that there's maybe six words that stand out to us in today's society that are included with a whole bunch of other things. But if I'm honest, are the words that have occupied me most this week in my meditations, in my wrestlings. And it's only two words in Greek, which perhaps makes it even worse. And we'll try and give that as much attention as Paul gives it, but no more. Why does Paul say, nor men who have sex with men? 
What's his argument there? What's his thoughts? And for a second, we pause and we recognize the deep emotion and trauma that texts like this have caused multiple people, many people, with same-sex attraction that have, have read this and said, Paul, what does this say for me? Am I discluded because of that? What's my pathway? What's my journey? For a second, just pause and recognize the emotion. But if you were in those shoes, what, what is the response? What is the dealing with that? There's one writer who sets this incredible scenario where he imagines that homosexuality is the dominant culture of the day and then asks you to imagine going with the person that you've fallen in love with, the person that you are deeply connected to, and presenting them to your society, to your connection, and say, this is the pathway I've chosen, and, and how that must feel as an emotional burden to deal with. And so we, for a second, get to pause, and while we wrestle with the text, we wrestle with the fact that emotionally it's traumatic. This is the writing of the band Fun in their song One Foot. I happened to stumble upon a chapel last night. I can't help but back up when I think what happens inside. I've got friends locked in boxes. That's no way to live. What you're calling a sin isn't up to them. After all, I thought we were all your children. But I will die for my own sins. Thanks a lot. We'll rise up ourselves. Thanks for nothing at all. So up off the ground, up our fathers are nothing but dust now. Can you feel the emotional rejection of the church and the God of that church based on a feeling and an emotion? We're dealing with some deep trauma, some deep struggle, friends, and we need to acknowledge that. What is challenging about this passage? What is challenging about this passage to me is what Paul does say. It's challenging because he uses words that nobody is particularly familiar with in terms of biblical scholarship. The terms themselves are confusing. He doesn't say things as concretely as he might. Sometimes I just want Paul to not say things. Sometimes I would say, just be clear, my friend. Like I grew up in that tradition where a preacher would say something and he would say, make it plain, brother. It would be like call and response. And I'm like, Paul, could, could you make it plain? Because what we read in our text as nor men that have sex with men is not that, of course course in Greek. Paul uses words that are unfamiliar and hard to understand. That phrase that we just read in Greek is two words, malakoi, which simply means to be effeminate. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. I feel like my long hair may have got some, some, some sideways looks from Paul who maybe didn't approve of that kind of thing. And, and a second word, okay, a person who makes use of a male only bed or a bed for males. There's, there's terms that just don't exist anywhere in the Greek writing. So we're wrestling with them saying, Paul, what, what do you even mean by this? Like, I'd love some more clarity from you. I wrestle with this text because of the words Paul chooses to use, and they're difficult and hard to understand, and we've maybe oversimplified them at times, and I have friends that are serious Bible scholars that would say I'm completely wrong on this issue, that it doesn't talk about any of the things that it seems like it's talking about on the surface, but, but perhaps equally problematic for me is not what Paul does say, but what he doesn't say. If I'm honest, if I take this issue of, of sexuality, which is just a small part of this whole series, this whole passage, and, and, and not necessarily one that I want to just land all our focus on, but I have to wrestle with the fact that Paul doesn't offer anything behind God's original design. He never moves away from his framework, which was in its original design, marriage was for a man and a woman. It was monogamous, it was heterosexual, and he doesn't just say it doesn't matter anymore. 
And so I wrestle with what I might like Paul to say and what he does say and what he doesn't actually say, and all of that is deeply complex. I would still say that Paul brings a Jewish sense of God's original design that is monogamous, it's heterosexual, and yet also at the same time, deeply complicated. Within a few passages, within a few verses of God outlaying his Adam and Eve story and all that should mean, we see ways that that gets fractured and ways we see God interact with his humanity to pull the story back into something that makes sense to, to deal with a humanity that seems to be operating on different terms than he might have operated on. In, chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, we read straight away, Lamech married two women. It's the first time that polygamy becomes part of the story, a, a break in itself from God's original design. He married one woman named Ada and the other named Zillah. The, the rabbinic commentary that goes alongside this says he married one for heirs and one for pleasure. Does that sound like the Corinthian story already? The Hebrew names of those two women's one, one means ornament, one means shadow. One means ornament, and one means shadow. Already there is a fraction, fracturing of that story in Genesis, and God goes to work to deal with his humanity and find ways to wrestle with them. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, we read a story of one of David's sons called Amnon. No, my brother, cried his sister, don't be foolish, don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it. He will let you marry me. But Amnon would listen, wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. We see this brokenness and how broken human beings contribute to the brokenness of other human beings and in return receive more brokenness themselves. The trauma of this story builds and builds and builds and we see this gracious God interact with his humanity that is already embracing things that were so far from the original design to, to such a point that Jesus is asked a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? It's fascinating that, that somewhere Jesus has been asked to speak into the political discussions of the day. There were two prominent rabbis of this time, Shammai and Hillel, and, and one of them said that divorce was permissible in some circumstances. One of them said that it was never permissible and, and, or only under very controlled circumstances. And so, so the question is, Jesus, which side are you on? It's interesting, and multiple times, Jesus enters into this discussion, or these different discussions. Almost every time he sides with Hillel, who was the more liberal of the two. The only time he sides with Shammai is on sexual ethics. There he lands on the more conservative side, and he recognizes this fact that, have you not read from the beginning? Original design, right? The creator made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, ideally, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the question for the Pharisees is maybe our question. Well, why then? Did Moses give an order that a man can give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why does God give an opportunity for human beings to work around their brokenness? Why not just say it's banned altogether, and then we reflect on just what would happen to a woman who didn't get a certificate of divorce in that society. 
In that society with a certificate of divorce, at least she can remarry, at least she has a pathway, but with nothing, there is just simply more and more brokenness. There is starvation, there is rejection, there's probably eventually something like prostitution in a story, and we see how God takes brokenness and says, I'm working around that brokenness, I'm working with my humanity. In the story of monogamy, in the story of heterosexuality, in the story of permanence, in marriage, it seems like God is constantly having to deal with a humanity that doesn't always respond the way he wants them to respond. Doesn't take us away from the ideal. Doesn't take us away from the original design. Seems to be pretty clear. It's, it's this monogamous, heterosexual, permanent thing. And yet, and yet somewhere in the story, God has worked with our brokenness continues to come after us, to reach us, to pull us closer to him. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart, but it was not this way from the beginning. And yet this Jesus story is about calling people deeper into that ideal, deeper in to that original design. What is challenging about this passage is what Paul does say. He could be clearer. He could be less vague, and he isn't. What Paul doesn't say, he could give us permission to say that it doesn't matter anymore, and he doesn't do that either. But perhaps the thing I'd have us focus on this is, is this, that in the midst of this conversation is just how broadly he speaks. Because I would suggest that there is no one in this room that God doesn't associate with sexual brokenness. He implicates every single one of us in that story. And it is inescapable. When Jesus is asked this question, he's asked about adultery, and he says this, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But he replies, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus expands this narrative and says, it's about all of you. If you think you're discluded from the list in 1 Corinthians, no, you are absolutely included. I, heterosexual person that has only been married to one person, who has never more than kissed another person when I dated in school, who went 25 years with no serious girlfriend until I got married, I am as implicated in, in 1 Corinthians 6 as anybody else in this room. I am in that passage, I am in that story. And Paul will not take one thing and say that matters more. He will not take one thing and single it out. He says, all of you, when you think you're not broken, you're broken. When you think you're only a victim and have nothing to be ashamed of yourself, no, no, that's none of our story. Every single one of us finds ourselves in that text. And what we long to do is we long to take something that isn't us and say that's the focal point. Let's point at that thing. Let's speak about that thing. And yet Paul says, no, it's you all. It's me. Everyone. That's how broad the text is. Within Jesus' teaching and the ethic that Paul brings, there is a recognition that an experience of sexual brokenness is the common experience of humanity. It's the experience for Lamech that we just read about. It's the experience for Amnon that we just read about. It's the, it's the experience for Tamar that we just read about. It's the experience of all of us. We are all broken 
in this way, we are all implicated. There is an escape for no one. So when you look at someone wrestling with sexuality, wrestling with gender, wrestling with what that means for the place in the kingdom of God, you are looking in a mirror and I am looking in a mirror because we are all, we are all friends in the same place, in the same text. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And slowly there's this silent thud as stones hit the ground as each one of the people in the story realizes their own implication in that and each of them walks away leaving only Jesus standing there. This story is a central core of the Christian ethic around sexuality, equal brokenness and only one who can stand and throw stones. The, the, the teaching of Jesus is that, the, that an experience of sexual brokenness is the common experience of humanity. It's everyone. And yet Paul has good news, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The beautiful part of this story is, is Jesus will wash anything that we bring to him, cleanse anything that we bring to him. And yet I said I was gonna try and irritate as many people as possible. So the truth is that you can come with lots of different identities. You can come with an identity based on a nation, on a political group, on a sexuality, on a gender. And Jesus will accept no identity above the identity he offers. There are no British Christians. There are only Christians that happen to be British. Simply Jesus will allow nothing to be placed before himself. And he may ask you for things that you love and hold deeply. And somewhere in that place, you may be left deciding between what he asks of you and what you are willing to give. We are all equally broken. What do we do with that brokenness? Some negative things. We hide our own brokenness. We find no spaces to reveal it. And it destroys us from within. We throw rocks at those whose brokenness looks different to ours. We separate them and say, let's talk about that and only that. We become the source of brokenness in others. And we look to find wholeness through others who also experience brokenness. When I worked with an orphanage in Romania, one of the things that they talked about often was how no one in the orphanage had married somebody else in the orphanage. And I said to the guy that founded it, tell me why that's important to you. He said, don't you realize when we have experienced trauma and brokenness, a natural tendency is to attach to somebody with the same trauma or similar trauma. The fact that each of these people that have been on this journey with us, that have got married, have found people outside of that story to attach to, that people in the world see them and say, no, these people are desirable, these people are whole in that respect, tells me something about the work we are doing here. We are bringing people to Jesus and allowing him to make them whole. And to, to him, he said, that's something to celebrate very deeply.
He was experiencing and seeing what it was for people to be healed of trauma. How often do you hear stories about us in brokenness, looking for somebody else who's broken, believing that might make us whole, believing they may give us the thing we need, and how often that leads to increasing brokenness. Think about the trauma that is pornography in the world, in some ways a far more dangerous issue for the church than anything else we've talked about concretely. And yet a deep problem, causing deep problems in people's psyches, in their brains, in marriages, in all of those different things. We look for people that are broken to give us healing, and it just doesn't seem to happen. It seems that at no point in history has brokenness plus brokenness equals wholeness. That's what we chase. I said no point in history, but actually I would say only one point in history. Because that's the Jesus story. Only once in history has brokenness plus brokenness led to wholeness. In Jesus, I believe that is true. In a moment, we're going to come to this table, which is a table of brokenness. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his earliest followers. And he said, this is my body broken for you. The Christian story, the Jesus story, is that in the brokenness of his flesh, every single one of our brokenness was dealt with, was met. In his brokenness, we experience wholeness. As he hung broken on that cross with no stylized loincloth in place, simply in all of his nakedness, in all of his humiliation, his brokenness, created the possibility that we might be whole. That temple that I mentioned, that temple is actually the temple of Aphrodite. It was a Greek temple where slaves would go and they would take their savings and they would create an account in the hope that one day they might buy their freedom. When Paul says this, he has a definite thing in mind. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. He pictured this temple where these people would go and they would day by day, week by week, put aside enough money that they might be able to buy their freedom. And he says, Jesus bought your freedom. He paid that price. He made you whole. At only one point in history has brokenness plus brokenness equal wholeness. The writer Nancy Pierce, he says this, why place sexuality at the center of identity? The Bible offers a more compelling script that defines our identity in terms of the image of God created to reflect his character. We are loved and redeemed children of God. When we center our lives on these truths, then our identity is secure. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it. In the same way that his body would be broken. He broke it and handed it to each of them. With all of the things that you and I bring, all of the past stories, he was broken for them all of our identities, all of the things that we cling to. His body was broken, that we might experience wholeness. 
we look for wholeness in so many places. And yet this story is the only time in history where brokenness plus brokenness equaled wholeness. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. For years I took that in remembrance of me to be a posture of thankfulness. And sure, that's there, that's important. But strictly speaking, the word remembrance is a deliberate recollection done to better appreciate the effects of what happened. In this moment, I invite you to contemplate on the effects of what happened. In the moment of his brokenness, he said, we are free. In the moment of his trauma, he said, our trauma might be healed. I think that's two things. I think there's both this instant change. In the moment of his death, our brokenness was dealt with. Forgiven, transformed. And yet there's a day-by-day, right? I don't know about you, but I am a very broken person in so many ways. There are so many stories under the surface. So many things on that list that we didn't get a lot of chance to talk about. So many things, so many ways that I am implicated. So many ways that I'm not all I might appear on the surface. So many ways that I need God's deep work in me. He's owning of me. He's working with me. He's tolerating me even if he's not very impressed with what he has on his hands. Maybe that's you as well. Maybe your story is in the story we talked through. Maybe there's wrestling with gender, sexuality, with how God sees you. Do you have a place in this story at this table? And I can't give you easy answers because the text doesn't give us easy answers. It simply invites each of us to continue to stumble towards Jesus knowing that the love that he had for us was enough that his body would be broken for our brokenness. So as you come to the table, I'd invite you to bring every question, every wrestling, every emotion that says, God, I don't want that in that text. Paul, what were you thinking? We bring everything. Not because it will be fixed right now. But because we come wanting to better understand and appreciate the effects of what happened. God, would you heal our brokenness? Amen. When you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come to this table. To come and take the bread and the wine. We're going to do this in a style called intinction. There's bread that has been broken for you. Take a piece, dip it into either the juice or the wine. And take the body and blood of Jesus together. As Aaron and the team lead us, come whenever you're ready. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. 
Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.